Let's get, let's get started. Let's open with a word of prayer and we'll begin. Lord, we thank you once again for the gift of your word that tells us about the gift of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that as we look into it today, as we study this book of Colossians, that we would see Paul's, Lord, joy and his suffering and his struggle for the gospel, Lord, and that he desires for your church to grow and mature. Lord, might we have that same heart. Lord, I ask your blessing upon the day. Give us ears to hear and to understand. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Well, we are at week five. We are in the letter to the Colossians. It was an epistle, right? It's a letter from an author with authority writing on behalf of the one who commissioned him to write it. So it, it comes with a message. Who here, I don't raise hands, but have you all had an opportunity to sit down in one reading or in one, one time and read it through like a letter it is? Yes, it's really meant, Paul wrote it, to be read. It is a letter. It's a letter to a church he'd never visited before, to a group of people he'd never seen, but whom were essentially his spiritual grandchildren, so to speak, right? Epaphras, who'd been led to the Lord by Paul, probably in Ephesus, had uh, planted the gospel and planted the church in uh, the city of Colossae, also in Laodicea, in the valley, the Lycos Valley. And uh, it's... This is where the church came from. So he wrote him a letter. There was false teaching that had sprung up within the church, and he was concerned for them, and he wanted them to be aware, to not follow the false gospel, but to stay true to what they'd heard and what they'd been taught. So this is the letter that he wrote to them. The message in Colossians, we've kind of summarized as being twofold. It revolves around the preeminence of Jesus Christ. And that the premise of Jesus Christ in all things should be proclaimed by God's people to all nations. And we'll see that even today in this section. The truth of the, and the truth of preeminence of Jesus Christ in all things should be practiced by God's people in all things. In other words, his preeminence should govern all that we do in life. How we have relationships, how we work, how we teach, how we admonish one another uh, with, as a body of believers together. It should govern all that we are. This was the little outline, a book outline. Again, I've got copies of these if, you, if you've lost yours or would like it. Uh, we went down here and we combined weeks, actually weeks three and four we didn't combine. We kind of expanded those two last week and, and, uh, and then and the week before last. So week five is where we are this week, verses 24 through actually verse uh, five of chapter two. And we'll see maybe about squishing something together or stretching something maybe at the end as we move forward. But this week we look at Paul's response to the preeminence of Christ. What is his response to that? He's just stated the preeminence of his person. He's just stated the preeminence of uh, the this work or the scope of the gospel. And now Paul is going to move forward. Again, Paul is fighting Aaron Colossae. And it is applicable for us today. How are we to guard against error? How do we answer rightly for our faith? And then kind of assumption, how are we to live rightly in Dallas, Texas? Or in the case of our visitors from Oklahoma, part, where? Nashville. Nashville. How do they live rightly in Nashville? Right? How do we live rightly in this world that we find ourselves in? That's the question. 
And we said that really a right view of Jesus Christ, a correct Christology, will really give us an answer to almost every situation that we can think of. If we start off with the right view of Christ, that's the right filter and the right grid through which we will work out the rest of our life and the rest of what we proclaim. Paul says in chapter 3, verse 17, that Christ is all and in all. He is all. And that word all, Ray and I were just talking at the Friday night, wasn't it? We talk about how that word all, full, just everyone, everything, just, just pervades this book. We talk about the, really that word all, panta, just it is throughout the book. Just, just read it and you'll see this, just, this gathering together of everything and what, whatever Paul is speaking of. Summer today, we looked first at Paul's prayer of praise, verses 3 through 8, where he praised God for the Colossians. Then, on behalf of the Colossians, he petitioned God, asking that they would be filled with all strength and he would work out in their life. We then looked at the preeminence of the work of Christ in verses 15 through 20 of chapter 1. And then we looked at preeminence of the work of Christ in verses 20 through 23, which is what we ended up last week. This week, Paul's response to preeminence of Christ. And I've really kind of broken down. Verses 24 through 29, is a, it's a paragraph. Then there's some arguments here in the first part of chapter 2, but... I've gone through verses 1 through 5, and I will look at Paul's struggle for the Colossians and the church of the Lycos Valley. And I think the key there being the church. Church is the church. Paul's struggle for the gospel, gospel ministry, and Paul's struggle for the gospel in the church. So today, let's, uh, let's stop for a minute and let's just read. Let's read our text, verses 24 through 29, and then after that in chapter 2. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister, according to the stewardship from God that was given to me from, or to given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The hope of glory, right? Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works in me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts might be encouraged, being knit together in love, to know all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this so that no one may delude you, no one may delude you with plausible arguments, for though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. So you see, in the first part, there was a general discussion of his gospel ministry, and then he goes on to speak specifically to the Colossians. First, I want to deal with this issue of Paul's ministry or his stewardship. We're going to go back up, okay, verse 23, and he ends verse 23 like this. 
verse 23. He says, Not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now we're going to move down to verse 25. Okay. Now, when he talks about this, he became a minister of what? Became a minister of the gospel's proclamation. Then verse 25, in which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. So Paul, it says, I'm a minister. What does the word minister mean? What is the word minister? Real simple. But when you think of minister, ministry, what are we talking about? Pardon? Comfort. That's maybe that's something a minister does. Preaching. Ministry is simply servant. That that word there became a minister. That's the word deacon, deaconos. Right? It's not the office. Paul's saying, but he said, "I became a servant of the gospel." And what does a servant do? The servant carries out the service or the. Uh, the ministry or the job that he's been given on behalf of the one whom he serves. And Paul says, I serve the gospel, right? Well, not only does he serve the gospel, but he serves the church, okay? He says, according to the what? I became a minister, okay, according to the stewardship from God. Stewardship. What's a steward? What does a steward do? Pardon? Takes care of something, right? A steward, in the absence of the one of whom he serves, when they go away, the steward is responsible for seeing to the obligations, for seeing to the responsibilities, for seeing how to carry out the duties of what he's been charged with, right? Christ has returned or has been exalted back to the Father's right hand. Paul is a steward of the gospel message to the church. So Paul is to see that the gospel message is carried out. And Paul said that's a stewardship that was given to him from God. Again, we have ministry and a stewardship. We talk of doing ministry, being in ministry. We are in ministry. That's, we use it in a sense of we serve. We are in service. We are in ministry or in service for the Lord. Okay? Um, we talked about it being the same word as deacon. In this sense, again, Paul's saying, I'm not, I'm not, I don't hold the office of deacon. He's not saying that. He's already said, what is Paul? What's his office? An apostle, right? An apostle still serves. The elders still serve. Okay? It's, in that sense, it's, it's a verb. Stewardship, there was Paul's commission. He being assigned the responsibility to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And the source of that responsibility was God. Okay. He was a steward of the gospel, and he was a steward of the church. Now, so what did this mean for Paul? What did this service, what did this assigned responsibility mean for Paul? How did it work itself out? That's the question. Okay, but For different people, that may be different things. But for Paul, it worked itself out in what? He taught. He prayed for, he encouraged, That's right. admonished. That's right, exactly. And how does he begin? Look at verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. 
So the first thing he says is, in my service, in my stewardship, I do it joyfully. That's the very first thing he says. I do it joyfully. And what does he do? All those things that Margaret just said, but he kind of, in some ways, he kind of skips it. He says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I'm feeling it was lacking. So he rejoiced, he rejoiced in that. Paul rejoiced in all the circumstances. Where, where does Paul find him when he was writing right now? Where does he find himself? Where is he writing from? Prison. Okay, this letter to the Colossians came from his time in prison. Um, Paul chose, even, in, even when he felt discouraged, okay, even when he felt discouraged, even when we are, we are down, we are out, we are still joyful, we are still rejoicing. Isn't that an interesting concept to be discouraged, to be tired, to be in pain, to be suffering, but still Paul was joyful. What steals our joy? What are some things that steal our joy? Circumstances? What is it? What? Grumbling. Grumbling is an, is a, is an out, basically a working out of that, right? Lack of joy. Okay. What's one of the things that really steals our joy real quick? Everyone look to your left. Everyone look to your right. People. <laughs> right? I mean, people tend to steal our joy, whether it be children, spouses, friends, enemies, but, but people, we do tend to let them steal our joy. What have we taken our eyes off of when we lose our joy? Christ, right? We've taken our eyes off of the right perspective, and the, res- our, the right perspective is our relationship with God. What? Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. Great suffering, great hardship, but for the joy, right, what his work did, going back to the Father, coming into his kingdom, but for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Now, let's look at Paul's ministry to the Colossians. What does he see? First thing, what does he say he does? He suffers for their sake. Is suffering punishment? Philippians 1.13. Someone want to flip there real quick? Philippians 1. You know, we tend to think of suffering of, well, I've done something wrong. If we're not, at least our children do. Our dogs certainly do. Right? If our dogs suffer, they look at you like, what are you doing? Right? What, what does Philippians 1.13 says this? What? His imprisonment is for Christ. In other words, his suffering is for Christ. Right? It's on Christ's behalf. And because of that, now flip the page to verse 29. Okay. It talks about, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Verse 28, don't be frightened about anything in your opponents. It's a clear sign of the destruction. Verse 29, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but what? Suffer. Suffer. For his sake. Okay? They've been found worthy to suffer. Now, personally, I've not suffered a lot. Not, I stop sometimes. I've not been found worthy to suffer yet in that sense. Okay? It, it, it's, it's not, it is not the yoke the Lord's given me to bear as of yet. 
We suffer in different things. We suffer physically. We suffer, suffer emotionally. If we've had children, we, we suffer in longing for them to come to the Lord. Maybe they haven't yet. We suffer in the loss of friends. and loss. But there's, there's all kinds of suffering that we do. So it's not just suffering for the gospel. Suffering wants to take our eyes off what? Suffering wants to take our eyes off who? Jesus. Satan brings suffering. He brings pain to take our eyes off Christ. So in all sense, when we suffer in all things in this life, I think we, we have victory. We suffer for Christ and that we don't take our eyes off of him when we suffer. So when you suffer and it causes you to turn to Christ and give glory to him in whatever circumstance, job, physical, emotional, family, you suffer on behalf of Christ. He gets to glory in that suffering. Even if it's not necessarily because you've taken the gospel to a far-off place and maybe suffered at the hands of beings or rods, in that sense, like Paul did. But we suffer, and the question is, what do we do with it? Yes, ma'am. Uh, David, I think it's interesting Right. That's it. It's interesting to think about what he means by first thing he can just cut the neck and cross the friction, so that obviously has a different Right. Yeah, the question is in his suffering, in his sufferings, he's filled up what is lacking. For the, for the sake of the body. I mean, what is this, what is this lacking? It, now, if you're in the Catholic Church, it's what's called purgatory. You haven't suffered enough. Therefore, you must go to purgatory to fill it up. There, is, there were some, there are some uh, sects of, quote, people that Christianity and even not, but they, they do things to their body. They beat themselves. They crucify themselves. They hit themselves with stone tablets in the head. They... They do things to suffer because they think, well, I need to be like Paul. I've got to fill up my body what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ so I can be like him. Well, no, I, I, don't, think, I don't think that's what Paul's getting at. But that's the question. What is this filling up what is lacking? Paul's not saying that Christ's substitutionary death lacked in any suffering. Okay? Or that any further suffering must happen for that the work of Christ to be effective. That's what, what Paul's doing. I mean, just look back in verses 21 through 23. We've been what? Reconciled in his body of death through his flesh. Okay? In Christ's death, in his suffering in the flesh on the cross, we have been reconciled. And we looked at all the different aspects of salvation last week, right? Adoption, redemption, forgiveness, justification. We looked at those different things that the work of Christ on the cross, his suffering did. So, Paul's not talking about salvation, but what Paul is saying is, Paul is saying his sufferings are on behalf of the church. That's what I think he's saying. Christ's suffering accomplished the salvation, right? To telestai. What to telestai? What does that mean? It is finished on the cross. Christ crawled out to telestai. It is finished. I have done all that needs to be done. But there's still suffering that is required for the gospel to go out. There's still suffering that must happen to God's people for the gospel to go out. Acts 9.16, the Lord showed Paul what he must what? Suffer for the sake of the name. Right? So Paul, 
from day one, so to speak, knew that he was to suffer for the name of Christ. What does that mean? To take the gospel to the Gentiles. Matthew 5, 11, 12, Jesus said, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you on my account. So blessed are you when you suffer on my account. Paul says he rejoiced in his suffering because it produced endurance. Right? Endurance. What was his endurance for? Why did he endure? Why did he maintain? Why did he say, I'd rather go home to be with the Lord, but I think it's better for you, when he's speaking to the Philippians, I think it's better for you that I stay here. So he suffered, and the suffering brought about endurance, and he endured for the sake of, in that case, the Philippian church. And overall, in our case, it's, it points to us, because we read these lessons. Paul suffered for us. Count it all joy, brothers, when you encounter various trials. Was that James said that? Jesus said, what? A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecute me, they will persecute you. So I I think that until Jesus returns, the gospel will continue to go out, both in proclamation, words, and in our lives, how we live. And we proclaim the gospel when we proclaim the foolishness of Christ, we, when we live in a way that shows the sinfulness of the world, okay, we are going to bring about persecution. I think that's what Paul's saying. Jesus' suffering accomplished the gospel. The church will suffer to complete the gospel. All right? It's, it's, it's that tension, right? Already, not yet. I have been sanctified in Christ. I am being sanctified. And one day I, what? Will be sanctified. I think it's the same thing in the suffering. Christ suffered. His body, the church, is on this planet right now. And His body will continue to suffer for the sake of taking out the good news that He accomplished in His body of flesh in the cross. So that's what Paul's saying. He's not saying there's anything lacking in the sense of worth or value he's just saying there's still a completing that will take place okay so now rejoice in my servings for your sake and in my flesh i'm filling up was lacking in christ's affliction for the sake of his body that is the church and now he moves down to a big segment here right paul's just declared his rejoicing and suffering for the sake of the colossians okay he just said i'm suffering for your sake. right? I'm filling up what is lacking. But now I think he, he steps down a bit to, to explain the purpose in his ministry, the purpose of what he's doing. Okay, What was Paul's ministry? It was, we, we'll go back to verse, well, it's in there in 25. What does it say? It was the stewardship of the, the gospel. Okay, To what? To make the word of God, verse 27, to make the word of God fully known, how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Um, Paul wanted to make the word of God fully known. He wanted to fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. Paul saw himself as commissioned by his master, the Lord, And like a good steward, having received his orders, 
he's carrying out his he's carrying them out in his master's absence to make clear the gospel. Because remember, what what's this falsehood Paul's fighting? Right, we're not exactly sure, but there's a mystery is what these false teachers are saying. You've you got to know something different. You know, yeah, you, you've, you've got Jesus, or you, you've heard the gospel, but there's, there's something higher. Paul's saying, no, no. My job is to make the Word of God fully known. Not, there's not something else. There's not some little secret. I've made God's Word fully known. To make clear the gospel, there's no partial revealing. Paul made a full explanation of the good news. Okay? Now I'm going to go back to what Margaret dealt with. How did Paul make a full explanation of the gospel? What are the things he did? Three missionary journeys. What else? Think about it. Three missionary journeys. He went where God told him to go. Right? He didn't go where God didn't let him go. Right? Man from Macedonia. He'd been trying to go into Asia. The Lord shut it off. man from Macedonia in a vision and dream come over. Paul was obedient. He stayed focused on the gospel. He said, render to Caesar what is Caesar's. He didn't get noticed. He didn't get caught up in the politics of the day. He stayed focused on the gospel. He poured himself into a few men that were in his close circle. Right? Timothy, Titus, um, uh, Onesimus, Titus. Uh, Papyrus, when he came to him, right, in the prison, Papyrus, so he poured himself into a full few men, but he also proclaimed to everyone, in a sense, through them and through his writings and, and whoever he encountered, he made the word of God fully known. He did it in the synagogues. He did it in the public square in Athens. He rented out local speaking halls. We find in Ephesians, he stayed there a year and a half, speaking daily, right, in the hot part of the day. Um, where else? In prison. In Philippians, he said, what? The whole Praetorian guards come to hear the gospel because of my being in prison. It's a good thing that I'm here. Caesar's household has heard the gospel because I'm here. He did it at night. He, he did it at day. Right? He, he never, and what he never did was he never sacrificed the depth of the gospel for the breadth. So he always made it fully known. He didn't give them, you know, what the gospel with cookies, so to speak. He always gave them the full gospel. So wherever he found himself, he preached the gospel and he preached it true. And he didn't give it, and he, and he didn't didn't give them a little smidgen. He always gave them the full word of God. He revealed everything to him or to them that God had revealed. To him. No sound bites. That's, that's, that's right. Paul made it known. He said, I, I'm, I'm not here with some kind of higher knowledge or second life. I, I'm making known to you everything. And what is it? It's simple. Christ lived. He came. He died. He rose again. He ascended. He's exalted at the Father's right hand and he's coming again. Right? That's what Paul made known. So what's the mystery that Paul made known? Just said it. It's the gospel, right? Psalms 25, 14 says this. The secrets of the Lord are for those who fear Him. Right? The secrets of the Lord are for those who fear Him. 
He made known to him the mystery that was hidden for ages and generations, but it's now been declared to the saints. Mystery. Mysterion. And that day was a secret thing. That which transcends normal understanding. Okay? Now, in a sense, it does, right? To those that are perishing, the cross is what? Foolishness. Right? But to those the Lord gives ears to hear, it's clear. So Paul didn't preach it unclearly. He preached it clear. He preached it simple. He preached it fully. And those that had ears to hear heard, and they heard all that there was. There wasn't something else after Paul came along. You know, we don't need another book. We don't need a book on gold tablets out of New York State. Right? That's the Mormons. Right? Joe Smith found other tablets. And there's further revelation. The further revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul says, no, I, this is it. There's no more secrets. This is it. You have the full gospel. But what are some of the facets of this mystery? What are some of the facets of it? Can you think about it? Because mysteries refer to a number of different things. In Romans, Paul says, the mystery is this, is that Israel will be partially hardened until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. That's a portion of the mystery, too. Okay? Israel will be partially hardened until the fullness of Gentiles come in. The Gentiles are fellow heirs. We are fellow heirs with Christ. Christ is our elder brother. And as the elder brother, or as brothers to the elder brother, with the same father, we enjoy all the benefits and privileges that go with that sonship. When Paul spoke of... Okay, what was the very first institution that God ordained or instituted? Go back to Genesis. What's the very first institution? Marriage. Well, for a long time, we all said, well, marriage is how procreation takes place, right? But what did Paul say marriage was? What did Paul say marriage was? An image of Christ in the church. He says, I tell you a mystery. So that, that, that image of Christ in the church had been there in front of men since the creation. And men had never saw it. It was, it was hidden. But Christ came, called us his bride. We had the parable of the, the wedding feast, right? And Paul says, I'm going to make known to you. You know, so he talks about the man and the woman, why they should relate to each other in the way they do. And he says, and you know, I'm telling you a mystery because I'm not speaking about marriage. I'm just talking about Christ and the church. Okay? So that was one of the mysteries that Paul, you could say, revealed, which is part of the gospel. The other mystery is incarnation, right? Christ becoming what? Man, flesh. What's Paul fighting? What's one of the heresies Paul's fighting here? Flesh, material is evil. Spirit is good. But one of the mysteries is God became man. And in that flesh, He died and He reconciled us to Himself. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12 says, Even the angels longed to look. They peered down trying to understand the time and circumstances. Time and circumstances. Yeah, they understood there's some kind of salvation going on. But they didn't understand that God would become man. So can you imagine that night in Bethlehem when all of a sudden the God of the universe 
became an umbilical child. I mean, the angels are just, I mean, they're, they're, they're rejoicing, their praise is, is mind-blowing because that was a mystery. Even they probably did not understand that Christ would come in human flesh. But Paul says that he's made it known. It's a wonderful mystery. It's a wonderful mystery. To them, God cho- to us, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is what? Christ in you, the hope of glory. Jesus will make his home in the believer. The Spirit of Christ dwells in us. Romans 8, Ephesians 3. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. We know the hope to which we are called. We are the church. 2 Corinthians 6.16 says what? The church is what? The temple of God. The temple of God. And God dwells in His temple. In His temple, God dwells among His people. You know, there's a, there's a story in uh, Leviticus where God has given them the law and he, He's given them rules for camp hygiene. And He says, um, don't do your daily business in the camp. Go outside the camp. Why? Because I'm a pure and holy God and I walk amongst my people. Right? He went in their camp to be clean because he was in their midst. In the same way, Christ dwells in his church. In the same way, his spirit dwells in us individually. So that is a great mystery. That is Christ in us. That is our hope of glory. Paul came to proclaim Christ. Christ in us, the hope of glory. So the question is, how did Paul go about this? How did he, he said he what? He proclaimed. Right? Uh, Paul didn't say, well, I made, I made hidden word crossword puzzles and disseminated them. Right? No, no. He, I mean, I'm joking, but, but the point being is, Paul claimed, he came and clearly proclaimed. What is proclamation? What is proclamation? What does it mean? Ray? Shout it out. Right? He didn't come whispering it. He didn't come just taking a few people. Hey, let me tell you a little secret. No, he says, I'm proclaiming it. He made Christ known first and foremost, not something else. He made him known publicly with the implication that there was to be broad dissemination of the gospel of Christ. Right? He made it clear. Simple facts. And what were those simple facts? His coming, his life, his death, his resurrection, his exaltation, his return, ascension, return to the Father, and his exaltation and glorification when he comes again. Right? Warn and teach. But his 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 proclamation had two aspects to it. Right? Warning and teaching. Warning is what? What's warning? Watch out. Don't do it. Don't do this. Don't do that. There's a warning aspect. There's a negative aspect. It, but there's also there's a positive aspect to it. He taught. So warning, he's, he is, I'm going to say is the, 
the, uh, the, the negative, the admonishment, okay? Encur- encouraging counsel, how not to live or even how to live. And teaching is instruction. Okay, so Paul came with all aspects of it. He warned and he taught. Now, who did he warn and teach? Everyone. Not a select group, not a small group, not to the Jews, not just to the Gentiles, not just to the Scythians, not just to the slaves, not just to the barbarians, not just the Romans. Warning everyone, teaching everyone why, for what purpose? To present everyone mature in Christ. Not just a few people who knew the secret. Everyone mature in Christ. So, so every one of you, every one of you, the Lord wants to be mature in Him. Okay? Um, that idea of maturity connotes to qual- a quality of being so wholehearted that one's devotion to the Lord is said to be blameless. Okay? Complete and undivided way in which a person with all one's positive and negative attributes is oriented toward God or Christ. It's not saying sinless, but it's talking about our orientation, our wholeheartedness. Ray, we talked about who, who was in, in Genesis, who's said to be wholehearted. He was found right before the flood. He was an individual. He found Noah was said to be blameless, but it's also said he was found to have, find grace. In other words, undeserved favor. So on the one hand, it says Noah was blameless in the eyes of the Lord, but on the other hand, it also says he, was, he found grace. Both sides. Noah was this wholeheartedness. Noah was this mature, this this complete uh, concept that we're talking about. And that's what Paul wants to us, wants for us. He wants us to be mature in Christ. You know, what's interesting is the people of Israel were called to be blameless. Okay, Deuteronomy 18 talks about that. Is that he called his people to be this blameless. He called his people to be mature. I'm not sure they ever got there, right? What do we have that Israel did not have in that sense? What does this church have? Yeah, Christ in us. Right? We have a, we we have an empowering. We we have God that lives in us. This was Paul's goal to present the Colossians as mature, blameless, wholehearted toward God, single-minded in conduct. If someone cuts you, what do you bleed? Right? Well, if you're a big Oklahoma fan, if someone cuts you, you bleed red, right? Right? Point being is think about it. If someone cuts me, I need to bleed Christ. That picture that. You know? I mean, in North Carolina, if they cut you, you bleed blue, so to speak, right? Think of that idea. It's what you are. It's all of your being. Verse 29, Paul says what? For this I toil. For this I toil. He worked and he strove. You know, we talked a little bit. It's interesting. Uh, the, the, the passage in the garden talked about Jesus agonized in prayer. In the garden, he was in agony. 
Well, that, that's, the same, that's the same word, this striving, toiling, struggling with all his energy. Just for this I toil, struggling, agonizing. It's a, it's a, a, it's a, it was a word for competition originally. Okay? Paul says, I strenuously work with all whose energy? His own energy? Yeah. His own energy to the point of exhaustion, and Christ is the one that empowered him. I love this. For this I toil, struggling. Wow, that's all about me, right? In that sense? With all his energy. With all his energy. Christ's energy. That he powerfully works within me. So when we're at the point of exhaustion, when we're out of gas... When it's Thursday morning at camp, for those of you you're ready to go, that's right. It's Thursday morning at camp, and you're at, it's, it's his energy. And maybe not even Thursday morning, maybe when it's Thursday night late at night. I say Monday. Monday. <laughs> when, when you're out of gas, it is, it's Christ's energy in you. So the question is, um, elders, teachers, parents, friends, fellow believers, when we toil for one another, right? I mean, Colossians 3.16 says what? We are to instruct and admonish each other, okay? Colossians 3.16 says that. In other words, we need to be on, on behalf of each other working to present each other mature in Christ. Teachers, elders, teaching, instructing, working with people to present each other mature in Christ. Parents, Raising your children up in the admonition of the Lord so that you may present them mature in Christ. Let's real quick. Let's, so the, well, we spent all of our time here in these verses, right? Thank you, Ray, for looking at your watch. I just looked at mine at the same time. So let's work through. Because what I want to do is, this is Paul's struggle for the gospel ministry. Now Paul's going to say, for this I toil, struggle with energy that powerfully works within me. Now, I want you to know, or for I want you to know, how great a struggle I have for you, and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face. And what I'm saying is, as, we work, as I worked through these verses, I started seeing it tie back up to this overall gospel ministry that Paul said he had. He says, I struggle for you and for those at Laodicea. He rejoices in their sufferings for your sake. He's filling up what is lacking. Why? For the sake of the church. The church. The church in Colossae. The church in Laodicea. The church that had not seen him face to face, Paul struggled for. And in his struggles, he suffered. I say this in order that no one may delude you with false arguments. I skipped. Did I skip? Oh, here we go. Yeah. I, well, must have deleted a slide. Go to verse 3, 2, 3. He says, that their hearts may be encouraged. Go to verses 2 and 3. Complete. Let's see. Philippians. Why does he struggle? That their hearts may be encouraged that they may be knit together in love. 
to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mission, which is Christ in you, and whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Go back up to 20, verses 25 through 27. Right? He struggled so that to present the mature in Christ. There's the same struggle for the, quote, gospel ministry is what he's doing for the individual Colossians. It's like he's repeating himself. Yeah, I've got this gospel ministry that God gave me, and I'm doing it for you, Colossians. You've never seen me. We've never met each other. But I'm doing it for you. I say this in order that no one may delude you with false arguments. Him we proclaim, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom. He warned. He taught. He proclaimed. He tells them about Christ. He tells them about Christ in you. If you go back up to verse, uh, verse, end of verse 27, it talks about Christ in you, right? Go to end of verse 3. He proclaimed the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. And he, and he proclaimed Christ so that no one would delude them because he wanted to warn everyone and teach everyone so that he could present them mature in Christ. For though I'm absent in body, I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Okay? Again, Paul struggled for the gospel, for the church, with all his energy, right, to present everyone mature in Christ. And he rejoiced to see the good order and the firmness of their faith in Christ. So the same thing that he struggled for here is what he's rejoicing for here. He rejoiced in his sufferings for them and rejoiced in their firmness and their good order. Paul worked out the gospel, the ministry for the gospel, and his ministry for the Colossians. So anyway, that's hurried up here at the end. Do we got? Do we got any questions? Do we have any thoughts on this? How does this work itself out in our lives? How, how, verse twenty-seven. Wanted to make known among the Gentiles the wealth of this mystery, which is Christ in you. So the wealth of that mystery, the gospel, is only fully understood not by Christ, but Christ in me. Christ in me. That's right. That's right. That's how it would be. The wealth of it, benefit, blessings would be understood among the Gentiles. And I think that needs to be a heart's desire. We need to struggle like Paul. We can struggle in prayer. We can struggle in our presenting our children mature. We can struggle along with those who are on the mission field and giving and support and prayer for them. There are a variety of things that we can do, but our heart needs to be the same as Paul's. We're not Paul. We're not apostles of Jesus Christ. But, but Christ is in us. And if Christ is in us, we should have the heart of the one who dwells within us. And his desire is that his gospel go out and his church completes what he started. And that all those who are his come in and they are mature in Christ. And that's our hope. It's our hope of glory. We have the Great Commission, which is not given only to the apostles. That's right. The Great, the great Commission is given to all of us. That's right. It's our ministry. 
Okay, and Paul is setting that example. Margaret. I thought of the thing about rejoicing, and when you when you struggle and in serving the Lord, and you give Him the glory, He in re, in turn gives you the joy. That's right. And so, in your struggle and identifying with Him. It's like he gives you the peace that passes, up, passes understanding. He gives you the joy. That's right. You struggle in him if, because he's working. That's right. If Christ is the preeminent one that he claims to be, verses 15 through 20, if you've been reconciled in the preeminent work of Christ, if Christ is in you the hope of glory, then we should be willing to suffer and to struggle for him. Okay, just like the Apostle Paul. Let, let's pray. We're out of time. Father, thank you so much for the day. Thank you for your goodness to us. Lord, I pray that we would take Paul's example of struggling for the gospel and that we might struggle for the gospel and be faithful to the work that you have given us in the part and the portion of the lives that you have placed us in. We may be faithful where we find ourselves. And Lord, I pray that being faithful in a little bit, that you would give us more to do. Lord, I ask your blessing upon this day. In Christ's name, amen.